Good morning, everyone. Uh, okay, so we're in the story where Yaakov is running away from home. His mother told him to escape, to flee Brach. His father, on the other hand, told him to go. Because from Yitzhak's standpoint, he's not fleeing. From Yitzhak's standpoint, it's not clear whether Yitzhak even knows about Esau's intentions. But he's sent by Yitzhak to find a wife. And in finding a wife from the house of Abraham, from his mother's family, as Yitzhak Excuse me, it, but you just lift uh, Rabbi Silber's uh, face. We don't see his, his mouth. You don't see me? So okay. Now we see. Good. Thank, Thank you. you. Fix this, yes. Thank you. The best I can. Okay. Um, so yeah. So the um, so he sent by Yitzchak to find a wife, and the wife is necessary for ensuring the that the blessing of Abraham proceeds through through Yaakov. That, for our purposes, is the key point. And Yaakov sets out again with dual purposes. One is to escape his brother. And his mother had said, you go for a few days. In other words, and I will retrieve you. And his father said something quite different. Go there, find the wife of your mother's family, and God will give you the blessing of Abraham. So these are the dual purposes. And we spoke about this. One can be conceived of largely in terms of punishment. That is, exile is punishment. And, um, and punishment for his behavior towards his brother and also his father. He did uh, deceive a blind, his blind father. So that requires some kind of uh, atonement. Uh, measure for measure is the way the Torah usually uh, has it play out. And that's one reason for going. But then there's another reason, which is to ensure the covenantal possibility. And what complicates the story, actually, and makes it very interesting, is that actually the experience that Yaakov will have in exile is, is one experience. It's the experience which he describes later as being a stranger and being enslaved and being abused, which of course are the covenantal terms back in chapter 15, but they also easily can be seen as a kind of punishment, as measure for measure. And then the question arises, obviously, what, de what determines whether something is a punishment or something is a covenantal possibility? So we spoke about that, probably revisit that again, but in any event, but meanwhile, Yaakov is on his way there. He hasn't gotten there yet. Yaakov's on the way. And um, he, uh, on the way, uh, the sun has set. And Yaakov goes to sleep where he finds himself at sunset. That's in verse, um, that's in verse number 11. Verse 11. And he goes to sleep there. Sounds like he sleeps there because that's where he happens to be at the time that the sun has set. And But the Torah says something interesting about the particular place where he sleeps, and that is, he calls it the place, Hamakom, the place, with a capital T, the place. And that term, the place, appears actually in this incident on, four on six different occasions. And very striking because the only other place it appears is in chapter 22 in the story of the Akedah which of course, as we discussed, is the transfer story of the blessing from through Avraham to Yitzchak. Avraham's blessing is assured through Yitzchak. And at the very moment, he discovers the place. He discovers the place and he also names the place. He names the place, the place where God sees, which today says the Torah is called the place in which God is seen. So seeing and being seen, 
That's the place, Habakkuk, Haramoria. And that's at the moment that he also un understands how the covenant proceeds. So now we have another story of someone finding this place, whether it's geographically the same or different, is besides the point. It's Hamakol. It is literally, conceptually, the same place. And yet it's very striking. One finds it at the end of his career, a life of searching and moving about and, and trying to figure out how the family works. That's the story of Abraham, the Akedah being the summa, one might say of that story, the culmination, the last time God speaks. And here we have a story with somebody of dubious character, I would add, uh, running away from his brother, who's angry about being deceived. And he discovers the place by accident because he doesn't even know he's there. He goes to sleep because the sun happens to set. So that's an interesting point. And the, the spin that I suggested is that what the Torah is setting up is that for Yaakov, it's not about discovering the place. The, the, the challenge of Yaakov's life is to be able to return to the place. The idea of return and the difficulty of returning to the same place. One might say when you return to the same place, it's never actually the same place, <laughs> given your experiences, but he's got to come back to the place. And that's how I, we begin this uh, morning. And then what's interesting is that in this place when Yaakov goes to sleep and he takes, uh, he takes literally one of the rocks of the place. The Medrash has a different take, which I'll get to later on, which is very interesting about these rocks. But the plain meaning is one of the rocks, puts it under his head as a pillow, not a very comfortable pillow. And he goes to sleep and he has a dream, Yaakov dreams. Now, the truth of the matter is that we've encountered dreams earlier in, in Breshit. For example, we know that in chapter 20, it says that God appeared to Abimelech in a dream um, and warned him about what might happen. But, uh, but uh, that's, it says that God appeared to him in a dream. It doesn't say that, it doesn't say that he dreamt. And here the initiative seems to be from Yaakov's side. Yaakov dreams and in his dream, God is present. So, uh, that suggests something about Yaakov, that Yaakov is a, is a dreamer. And of course, in, in looking forward to the rest of this book, we know that the other dreamer is a Yosef. Yosef is not only a dreamer, he's a dreamer, he's also one who, who can interpret his own dreams. And perhaps what, ya what Yaakov is doing maybe in this chapter is also interpreting his own dreams. Because God speaks to Yaakov, then Yaakov responds. And Yaakov's response is very significant. So Yaakov has the dream. In the dream, God is standing, sounds like above a staircase. There are angels going up and down the staircase. And in this dream, God speaks to Yaakov. And God says to Yaakov, the place that you are sleeping, the land in which you are sleeping, so apparently he has not yet left the land. You see, still in the land of Eretz Canaan. He hasn't gone to Haran yet. He's on the way. But the place in which you are sleeping uh, is... Um, is going to be given to you. The place that I promised to give your father Abraham and Yitzchak, it will be yours and your descendants. But by the way, Kayla, I have Wendy Baker's calling here. She's probably trying to get onto the Zoom. I don't know why she can't, but uh, she's calling Drisha, I see. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, 
that's where we essentially left off last time. So I want to pick up and complete this story, which is very significant, and then to move forward to chapter 29. Yaakov has a dream. Now in this dream, when Yaakov wakes up from his dream, waking up from the dream in verse number 16, Yaakov wakes up from his dream, Certainly God is in this hamakom, in this place. I did not know. So Yaakov is startled, right? He wakes up. Um, and the next verse, he was frightened. And he said, This place is certainly no rock. Terrifying, perhaps, is the right word, or frightening, awesome. Um, so this is, let's see what they say here, um, awesome. They like the word awesome. Um, awesome is this place. Um, and now Yaakov uh, uh, does something. Yaakov responds. His response, he says, this is certainly the house of God. Beit Elohim, the gateway to heaven, the house of God. Now the term by it is very significant in this story. First of all, Yaakov says, this is the house of God, Beit Elohim, calls about having this as the gateway. Number two, uh, in verse number 19, he gives a name, Hamakom, he names the place, right? He names the place God's house. So he actually gives the place a name. And actually, as we're thinking about it, it's similar to the story of the Akedah, because when Avram discovers the place, he not only discovers the place, but he names it. So Abraham also gave, in his transfer story, he gave the place a name. God will see, God will choose, Yireh to see, to choose. And the Torah confirms that it's a good name, because God, in fact, is seen there. And over here with Yaakov in Hamokom, he also named it, but he gives it a different name. He calls it Beit El. But that is connected, obviously, to what he said when he wakes up, which is, Ein Zeki and Beit Elohim, this is certainly the house of God. And then the word by it comes back again in the story. At the, towards the end of the chapter, when Yaakov takes his vow, we'll discuss the vow shortly. Yaakov says to God, if you take care of me, if you feed me, if you clothe me. Then he says, Bishavti Bishalom El Beit Avi. And I, I return in peace to my father's house. And God will be for me a God. Then, this rock, which I place up as a pillar, shall become the house of God. And all that you give me, I will, I will tie. So the word by it actually appears in pretty rapid succession four different times. And the key over here is clearly when Yaakov says, the place is Beit Elohim. He names the place Beit El, which means God's house. But then he, at the end, he promises that if you return me in safety, that this pillar which I set up, this Matseva, shall become Beit Elohim, shall become God's house. So what Yaakov means by that, presumably, is that, on the first level, is that when he says this is the house of God, he's not referring to where he's sleeping. He's referring to what's above where he's sleeping. He's saying where he's sleeping is the, is the gateway, is the, is the entrance way. 
is the foot of the staircase upon which the angels ascend. But that's not the house. The house of God is up there. Where I am, though, is I'm underneath, as it were, the entrance. I'm by the entrance to the house of God. But Yaakov's vow is, if you protect me, bring me back in safety, then, says Yaakov, I will here, right here, I will build the gods of house. Uh, so this is the question. Yes, the question is in the chat, whether Beit El is actually Haram Moriah or is a different place is a good question. My point is, you can read it either way, I think, but uh, Beit El geographically is not exactly Haram Moriah. But of course, in the story over here, I think what the Torah is suggesting is that, yes, I would say that here, the Torah is suggesting, it's not about geography, the Torah is suggesting that the place that Yaakov comes to and the place that Avram comes to, conceptually the same place. The difference is what you call it. Avram called it the place where God sees or is seen, and Yaakov calls it Beit El. And the word Bayit over here is very significant, because what Yaakov is promising to do is to build the Bayit. And to build the Bayit, which is, one might say that, the, the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly temple, which is beneath the heavenly temple, as we discussed last week. The heavenly temple is above, but the human being doesn't ascend to the heavenly temple. The human being is on earth. And human being's work is to build God's temple on earth, not, not to ascend in the staircase to heaven. That's what the Migdal Bavel is about, above El, above is the gate. God, Babel was the gate of God. In Babel, in chapter 11, the humans wanted to ascend to the heavens, to reign over the heavens, one might say. And that's not possible. But Yaakov's is different. Yaakov's uh, intention is to build the bayit. Now, the word bayit has multiple meanings, as we'll get to shortly, but this is Yaakov's mission. And I mentioned this here. Let me make one more point, and I'll stop and take comments or questions. And that is, that we have in this particular story something else. We have Yaakov the dreamer. And I would say Yaakov also is taking what, what is his dream and kind of interpreting it or building upon it. He, is, he makes a promise in response to God speaking to Yaakov in the dream. The promise takes the form of a vow. Yaakov Neder. In verse number 20, so Jacob makes a vow, makes a commitment. And they will get to the vow is interesting for a couple of, of reasons, very important. Let's understand what the vow is. First of all, what is a biblical vow? Let's start with that, a neder. So we know that, for example, in the, we know that we know the Torah speaks of a neder, a vow. The Torah speaks of, uh, of uh, oaths, a shavuah is an oath. In the, in the Talmud, you have a tractate called Masechet Nidarim, the tractate of vows, and you have a tractate of, of oaths, Masechet Shavuot, Shavuot, you have the tractate of, of oaths. In the Talmud, actually, the Talmud distinguish oaths from vows primarily in this way, that, because they're similar, but the a Talmudic distinction between oaths and vows is that a vow, as the Gemara sees it, is when I say about an object or a thing that is forbidden to me. That's called the neder, konam, a neder. Something is forbidden to me. Parallel to a sacrifices. A sacrifice, and I, I designate something as sacred. So once it becomes sacred, it becomes off limits. The idea of a neder 
in Talmudic thinking is that I can do similar things with objects that are not sacred. I can, in a sense, do similar things. I can say that this object, this food, this uh, salad over here is forbidden to me as a nether. And that's, it becomes forbidden. It's called a nether. It's called nidre, that's a nether. Whether that's the pshat and chumash or not, that's not a problem now. But that's the rabbinic understanding of a nether. Shavuah is different in the Talmudic thinking. A shavuah is not where I say the object is forbidden to me. A shavuah is where I say I am forbidden to partake of, to eat of, to benefit from this object. So when one, that's the distinction, the question of gavra and chepza. That's where it comes up primarily. That a shavuah is, it is a gavra. Shavuah is, I can't, I'm not, I, I forbid myself to do X. And another is, I forbid X upon me. One might say, what is the difference? It's purely semantic. It is semantic, but it has several uh, important uh, uh, differences emerge from this distinction. But that, in any event, is the pri primary way in which the Talmud distinguishes a neder from a shvua, what they call nidre iser. There's also a neder where you promise to bring a sacrifice, which is called nidre hegdish. But I'm talking about nidre iser. You forbid something that's absolutely neutral, a salad, a book, any number of things can be forbidden. That's the whole track they call Musechet Nidorim. Now, what about the, the Bible? What about the Tanakh? What is distinctive about a neder in the, in the Tanakh? And the primary distinguishing feature of a neder in the Bible is that a neder is a statement that I make, which is conditional. The nedarim are essentially conditional. As we have over here in the case of Yaakov, the first neder we encounter, which is Jacob's vow, which is verse number 20, by Yidar Yaakov neder Remar. If God be with me, and, and protect me on the path in which I go, and give me food to eat and clothing to wear, and I return in peace to my father's house. And now we come to the question, for your Hashem could mean. If you do these things, one way to read it, which I don't think is the best way to read it at all, but one way to read it is look God. Because God said to Jacob in the dream, I will protect you. Verse number 15. I will bring you back. I'm not going to abandon you. God said this to Jacob. One way to read it, which I don't think is a very good way, is Jacob simply repeats what God says. Okay, you told me you're going to protect me. You're going to bring me back. If you, in fact, do what you said you're going to do, then, then you'll be my God. And if you don't, then, well, all bets are off. What does that mean? So that's one way to read it, but I don't think that's really the right way to read it. I don't think that's what Yaakov is saying over here. I think he's saying something different. And in point of fact, before I get to what's different about it, it's not even clear to me that is if you do X, then Y. That is the why. That is to say, if you protect me, you'll be my God. Because it's very unclear where Jacob's, what Jacob is requiring of God in order to do what Jacob wants to do. Because another way to read it is if you give me food to eat, if you protect me, bring me back in peace, if you are my God, then 
I will take this pillar and build it into the house of God. That's also a way to read it. But what does it mean? The crux of the matter is, how do we understand the phrase, Hashem Elohim, and Hashem, this God that appeared to me, that's how God uh, appeared to Jacob. God said to Yaakov, Ani uh, Hashem, I am Hashem, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. That's, that's who I am. <laughs> that's how God appeared to Yaakov. So one way to read it, I think, the way I prefer to read it is this. What Yaakov is saying is, you appear to me as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's what God said. Hashem Elohei Abraham, Avicha Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak. I'm the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I'm going to protect you. I'm, here's the blessing. You can, you can you follow in their footsteps. You have the same blessing. All of that. And then Yaakov says back in return, if in fact that happens, or when it happens, perhaps. Im doesn't always mean if. It can mean when as well. Not necessarily if. Can mean when in biblical Hebrew. And when that takes place, then, and the operative word over here is the word we. Then you will be my God. What Yaakov means by that is, Yes, you're the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Yes, I follow in their footsteps. Yes, I'm the son and grandson. That's all true. That's my connection to you as Abraham's grandson, as Isaac's son. Yes. And my father even blessed me with the blessing of Abraham. When I come back, you shall have the blessing of Abraham. That's what Isaac said. But Jacob says something different. He says, yes, I am the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. But I want to establish my relationship with you in a different way as well, which is, you will be my God. What does, it, what does it mean, my God, as opposed to their God? It means I will do something. I'll have a relationship that they could never have. They couldn't do it. Only I can do it. They couldn't do it. And what is that relationship? The relationship is that, and the key word in this story is the word bayit. If you protect me, care for me, etc., here's my promise. Here's my neder. Here's my vow. My commitment. That's the right word. Here's my commitment. I will build the house. Now, what does it mean to build a house? So the word by it, which is a central word, has multiple meanings. One is a temple. The Beit HaMikdash is called the Bayit. The Bayit there means, among other things, the temple. The Mikdash is called the Bayit, Beit Hashem. But the word Bayit has other meanings. And in the book of Reishit, when Yaakov uses the word Bayit, at least on two occasions, he refers to something else. For example, in the ensuing story where he works for his father-in-law, Lavan, he works for 14 years, and he has two wives now. He only wanted one, but he has two. And uh, Lavan says, why don't you stay some more years? Well, Lavan likes these conditions. Guy works like crazy, and he gets nothing for it. So why don't you stay for me? Stay with me and work. And Yaakov says, listen, I've been working for you the whole time. Now I have to work for my bayit. Mishpuche, no? What? Bayit is That's When Yaakov, it has many meanings. When Yaakov says it, it means his family, mishpuche, right? And he says it again, actually, not only in chapter 30, but he says it in chapter 34. 
where he talks to Shimon and Levi, who have massacred the town of Shem. And Yaakov says to them, uh, you, you have deceived me, you have tricked me, you have sold me, you betrayed me, maybe. Right? And they're going to gang up against me, all these nations. And my bayit, means my family, will be destroyed. So when Yaakov uses the word bayit, Beit Yaakov, it refers to the family. And that's what Yaakov is saying over here. That's the neder. The neder is, yes, Abraham, of course, is covenantal. But only one of Abraham's sons actually is in the covenant. He has two sons. They're both blessed. Yishmael is blessed in the Chumash, but not the blessing of Abraham, not, not, not the covenantal blessing. Esau, very successful, but not the covenantal blessing. Says Yaakov, I, if you if you allow me to do this, bring me back to my father's house and I make a commitment to you in return. <laughs> Namely, I will build the bayit. That, this, is the, this is Jacob's dream, one might say, Jacob's sense of his own obligation, his own commitment, which is to build a structure in which everybody can be included. That is to say, all of his sons, it's a patriarchal book, all the sons will be included in the blessing. And it's never happened before. And in point of fact, we should never forget, and the very important point, that both on the level of the patriarchal family, that is Abraham and Isaac, but on the level of the universal family, which is Adam and Adam's uh, and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Hevel, the first story of Cain and Hevel, well, the second story, what is God favoring Hevel? But the second is the killing of Hevel by Cain. So brothers don't do well in this book so far. We don't have a situation where siblings can share a blessing. And Jacob says, if you allow me, give me the opportunity, then my ned and my commitment is I will build this bias. And this actually sets up the rest of the book because the rest of the book is about, can Jacob in fact do this? And to get to the, and actually the, the, the deeper point over here, and a very important point is, that remember that in the covenant of Abraham, this is a very important point. In the covenant of Abraham, when God spoke to Abraham, and God spoke about three generations and four generations, three generations of suffering, but the fourth generation shall return to the land. At the time of the sin of the Amori is not yet complete, etc. The point is that the Torah in the covenant speaks of three generations and a fourth. And the point is, the way it plays out in Sefer Breshit is that the first three generations in Breshit, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are one person chosen, uh, chosen from, 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 from somebody else. Abraham is one son of Terah, chosen. Isaac is one son of Abraham, chosen. I refer to covenantal, chosen. Jacob is one of the two sons of Isaac, chosen. That's the three generations. But but the fourth generation shall, re, shall return to the land, right? A door is also a group of people, actually. <laughs> the word door in, in the Psalms means not just generation, but a group of people. Um, and that's Jacob's mission, that the fourth generation is different. Generation four is, if possible, that all of the sons will be included. And that's Jacob's mission. And Jacob will actually succeed in the mission because at the end of the book of Breshit, 
Once again, we have blessings. But in the chapter 49, Jacob will bless all of the sons. Shnei Masar, he blesses all 12 of them. Now, some of the blessings are not quite as good as the others, and some have a lot of criticism. But as the Torah says explicitly, these are the 12 sons of Jacob. He blessed them, each according to his blessing. So Jacob succeeds. At the end of the day, there is success in the mission. What it takes to get there, though, is the story of Genesis. Because Jacob will find many obstacles in his path. The main obstacle, of course, is Jacob. Is Jacob himself. He's his own worst enemy in terms of building the family. With the divisions in the family, etc., can all be traced back to Yaakov himself. But this is the vow. It's not that I'll believe in you if you're good for me and not help It's not about believing. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac, and I'm the son grandson. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm, 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 I'm in that. I'm, I'm, I'm included in that. I got all that. And that's what you said to me. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac, and I accept that God. But I'm going a step further. The nether goes beyond. The vow goes beyond what you have to do. The vow I take on myself more. And what Yaakov takes on is this awesome mission to build the bayit. So the bayit has multiple meanings. It refers to heavenly Jerusalem and earthly Jerusalem. So it's earthly Jerusalem. I'm going to build God's, do God's work on, on earth. I'm going to build God's sacred space on earth, the bayit. And he's going to do that later on. And God says, go to Baytel. He brings the whole family with him, not just himself. He brings the whole family in chapter 35. But the, the larger point, of course, is that the Bible refers to Yaakov's family. And this is the struggle that Yaakov will have to try to do something no one else has ever done, not on the universal level, which is the Cain and Hevel story. And remember that the story of Yaakov and Esau, where the father favors one or the other, recalls for the reader the story of Cain and Hevel. So the story of Cain and Hevel is out there. It's not, it's not ancient history. We read it already. It's, it's very present history. It's present in the story of Yaakov taking the birthright and Yaakov taking the blessing primarily. Struggle between siblings, who's primary, who's secondary. So this is Yaakov's nether. Yaakov takes on this obligation if, if or when I have the opportunity. If I have the opportunity, I will build the house. And here we come to one last point before I stop to take comments and questions. Here we come to something else. I'll make two points. And that is that what's interesting in the story over here, in chapter 28 in Vayetze, is the, is the um, theme of the rocks, the Evan. Yaakov runs away and he's going to sleep and he takes from the rocks of the place and puts them under his head. Then he takes a rock and he sets up one rock as a pillar. The Hebrew is Matseva. And then he makes his promise. If you allow me, I will take this rock, this one rock, which is a pillar, and I'll build the house. So the idea of the stones is the idea of building. And the idea of taking one rock is for now. But if you give me the opportunity, I'll build an entire house, which is not composed of one rock, but rather many rocks, many stones. That's the first point. So we, in, in thinking about the story, as we move forward, we keep this in mind. The idea of building the ideas of, of the of the event, which will play out in the next few stories. That's number one. Number two is an interesting medrash. The medrash says the medrash is bothered by the following. Whether they're really bothered or not, I can't answer that. But they use this these words to make a point. 
he took of the stones of the place and he put it under his head. So the Medrash understands or chooses to understand for its own purposes that he didn't take one rock, but he took me'avne from the rocks of the place they think doesn't mean he chose one of the many rocks of the place, but rather he took many rocks and put them under his head for his pillow. It wasn't just one rock, it was many rocks. And, but then it says later on, he took the rock which was under his head and set it up as a pillar. So before it said there were many rocks, claims the Medrash. Now it says there's one rock. So what happened? Says the Medrash, a miracle happened. And the many rocks became one. Many of us are probably familiar with this medrash. And of course, the question is, what is the medrash trying to say? That's always the question. Not about miracles where many rocks turn into one. But what is it about? And of course, what it's about is obvious, which is that that's Jacob's mission. Jacob's mission is to take many rocks, that is to say, many different kinds of people. And somehow, many different kinds of people to be able to create a, a, a community where people are different, but still see themselves as part of one community. That in fact is what is the challenge, what Jacob calls a bayit. The bayit doesn't mean, community doesn't mean everybody thinks the same way. That's not a community. A community means that people are different. And yet somehow with the, with the differences, with the disagreements, our whole tradition is about Talmud Bavli is all about disagreement. People are not agreeing. No two thinking people think alike. If they're thinking alike, they're not thinking. No two people can be identical. Nor do we aspire to that, obviously. That would be very dehumanizing to a way to, uh, to approach life. Now, people are different, but the question is, do we have enough in common? Can we find opportunities to come together? I think part of it is studying Torah together, in my view, is an opportunity to bring people together and to have an open and honest conversation. Because open, openness and honesty helps us build community. And we find we have a, do have a lot in common. We basically, many of us aspire to similar things. We have different ways to get there. But we often agree about the goals, <clears throat> not about the means. So that's the, that's the challenge. The challenge is, can you bring people that are different together and create community. And when the Torah is clear about this, it's not easy. That's clear for any number of reasons. It's very difficult, but that is Jacob's mission that he takes upon himself. And that's what the message is getting at. That's the miracle of the many rocks becoming one. And it, sometimes I think it's a miracle. Uh, and that's the point of the Medrash. So the Medrash, of course, picks up as it often does on what is key to the story. And this is Jacob's vow. Now, there's more to say here, but I'll stop at this point. If people have comments or questions, I'll be happy to uh, entertain them. Rabbi Silver, there are a few yes. comments from there are a few comments from the chat. Sure. Um, one comment from uh, Jennifer Malvin is: Aside from the wonderful midrash, how did you summarize that the stone was actually many stones? Since, as um, Ozzy pointed out, Matseva is one rock and Amizbeach is many rocks, and Hebrew is singular. Right, no, I'm saying that, right. So the point is the, well, the first one, the question is, what is Me'avne? He took of the rocks of the place, right? He took, means he, as the Mepharshim say, he means he took one of the rocks of the place. Me'avne Amakom, there were many rocks lying about. He chose one, maybe the biggest one. He uses it as a, as a pillow. Maybe he chose the best one, the one most that could fit under his head or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, so the, what is the question? The question is, let's see. 
Um, it says that he built, he took him, he made a matseva. It says in the text that he, a matseva is, is, is one stone. The Gemara later on, by the way, the, the Talmud talks about a matseva as something forbidden. Matseva later in the Bible becomes forbidden. It, it's kind of a kind of idolatrous practice later on. Matseva is forbidden. Mizbech is permissible, Matseva is forbidden. But over here in the story, we're prior to, to, to what happens later after Sinai. So Jacob takes the Matseva and Jacob says, he takes one rock. He pours this libation upon the rock. He took Sheben Arosha. And then he says later on that when I come back, I'm going to write, I presume what that means is that this will be the foundational stone, as it were, right? So we say in the heaven, there are cornerstones in every edifice. There is, you build a building. So there are foundational, foundational pieces to the building and there are ornamental pieces to the building, the things you add on to the building. So what Jacob is saying is this rock shall someday become the house of God, means this rock will be seen later on as the beginning. If I come back to this place, looking at this place, 20 years later, I say to myself, what happened here was the beginning of all kinds of good things. Often happens that way. You start very small and you don't know where it's going to end up, actually. Who knows? But you start with something, you have an intuition, maybe you want to something. And then later on, that's something that you did became the, the building block or the first step in building an entire edifice, building all kinds of things. So that's what Yaakov's saying. He's not saying this one stone will be a mizbeach, once or a house, no less. A house is big, a house is many stones. But he's saying that this will be seen as the beginning. That what I'm taking upon myself is the obligation to attempt at least to build the house, but I'm gonna need some help, he says, from God. Of course, I have to come back in safety. Without safety, how can you build anything? If you're living under the gun all the time. If you're starving to death, I mean, the concern is putting food on the table for tonight's meal. So you can't really do much with that. You have to be able to function. But if, I, if I'm functional, he's not asking for a lot. A coat to wear and, and lechem to eat is not, he's not asking for a sumptuous meal. He's asking for the basics. I need safety. I need security. I need to be able to survive. And if you give this to me, give me the opportunity, then yes, this one rock will be seen, will be the foundational stone for the building that I promised to do. Um, yeah, so that's, that's not clear. But the point is that uh, the plain reading of it is that he took one rock. That's how the commentaries see it. And that if you look at them, you'll see that the classical Mepharshim won't take it that way. He took one of the rocks. I guess the Medrash is bothered. Why mention any of the other rocks? Just say he took a rock, right? To may have may have right. a call. Right. So the Medrash is sensitive to maybe he took more than one. I see. I'm sorry. I misunderstood that somehow the one rock was actually many rocks, but it it's not uh, it's not like in a physical sense. I, I understand now totally. It's what it represents. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Okay. No problem. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Eva? Yeah. Um, I when I read this, I responded to your first interpretation, which you did not agree with, that um, Jacob's promise is conditional, and it struck me that Abraham just said hineni and whatever God told him to do, he just did it and he set no conditions. Lech lecha you know, sacrifice your son. 
and and I'm I'm just wondering if this shows something aside from the fact that Jacob is making a larger promise and right. creating a new relationship. If it also shows that his faith is not yet as solid as Abraham's was from the beginning. I don't know about that about the faith part of it. Look, the the the, the point the point exactly. you made before is the point. He's he's not doing what God tells him to do. God didn't say to Jacob build build the buyer. Right. That's the idea of the nether. The nether means I take on more. A nether, even in classical Talmudic understanding, a nether is always something that I don't have to do, but I take upon myself to do it. Sometimes I took upon myself to do something and it was a mistake in retrospect because I, I didn't realize the situation properly. That's why the rabbis invented what they call hatarat uh, nedarim. That's kol nidre. Kol nidre means I took obligations upon myself and I, now I realize that they were beyond my 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 capabilities. So please, I want to I want to I ask uh, that the court uh, uh, somehow remove that obligation from me. Not I think by the way, just in passing, in my view, not because taking on obligations is a bad thing. I think it's the opposite. I think that if you realize that there is a way out of bad of bad commitments, you're more likely to make commitments. If you realize there's no way out, you'd be very hesitant about making commitments. The idea of kol nidre is not that I, we don't want to make commitments. The kol nidre is the opposite. That actually it's what allows us to make commitments. The sense that, okay, we make commitments, we should keep them, we do our best. Sometimes we realize that we just made a mistake. And then, okay, there's a way out. There's a way out. There's a way out. That, that's very important. But no, my point is, whether he has the face of Abraham or doesn't have the face, I, I don't think the text speaks to that at this point. Uh, he says, if you prove that you're really my God, well, then the I'm... question is, right, but that's the way you're reading it. But the point is that if, <laughs> the, the M, first of all, in, in classical biblical Hebrew is not always if, that's number one. And number two, he might be saying something else, which is, if in fact you do what you say to me, you can see that as doubt, or you can say, look, I see it more as when. If in fact this takes place, whenever it's going to take place, and by the way, when you first read the story, you say to yourself, well, his mother said, I'll call you back in, a, in just a few days. But then God said to Jacob, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to abandon you. And then you realize, why would God say, I'm, I'm going to, not going to abandon you. I'm going to protect you if he's going away for three weeks. In point of fact, he goes away for 20 years and he almost doesn't make it back either, as we'll see. He's going to a very dangerous place. I don't think he understands this. And the reader doesn't fully get it yet, but the reader is tipped off by, by God's statement, I'm going to protect you. When someone says, I'm going to protect you, that's when you start worrying. So again, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that I think it's open as to whether the nature of Jacob's faith, but my, my point, it's my interpretation, you don't have to accept it, but I believe that it's more about taking on what God did not tell him. That's the point of taking an obligation on that God did not tell. And that's the idea of the nether. The idea of the nether is that. And the idea of the nether is something else. And this is a really important point for, for the Torah, which is that Jacob's saying that I will come back to the land. And my coming back, he, he, he takes a vow that if, I, if, I, if or when I return, I will do A, B, and C. And he does a similar thing later in the Chumash too. He does later on in the Chumash um, 
when he talks to Joseph in chapter 48. And he says to Yosef that I'm, gonna, I'm dying in Egypt and I want you to bring me my body back to the land of Canaan. And Joseph says to him at the end of 48, yes, father, I will do as you say. And Jacob said to Joseph, I want you to swear. And the question, of course, when you're studying that, and I've taught that chapter several times, what does Yaakov say to Yosef, I want you to swear? So one possibility is, I want you to swear because he's concerned he's not going to do it. Why wouldn't he do it? His, his, his faithful son, Joseph. Because you know what he might say? Because Yaakov understands that Paro is not going to be happy, not going to want to permit the father of the viceroy of Egypt to be buried in a foreign land. It's going to be difficult. And in fact, it is difficult. You see in the Chumash, Paro is not happy with it. So I want you to swear means, because when you swear in the Bible, you have no options. You have to keep the oath. You must fulfill the oath. So one possibility is I want you to swear because this way I know you're going to do it. Because otherwise it's going to be difficult. And you might say to yourself, you know, it's very difficult. Paro's putting all kinds of pressure on me. If, if, my, if my father would understand if I don't do it, because it's so difficult. And father, were he here today, would, wouldn't want me to be under such terrible pressure. Father would say, okay, I understand. It's a good thing, but I don't want to put the pressure on your son. So Yaakov says to Yosef, I want to put the pressure on your son. No excuses. I don't care what kind of pressure you're under. I want to make sure you do it and there's no way out. So don't mm -hmm. try to rationalize later. And it's going to be difficult and it is difficult. That's one way to read the text. But there's another way to read the text, which is different, which is ya Yosef said, I'll do as you say. And Yaakov believes. Yosef says, I'll do as you say. He's going to do what his father commanded him to do. I have no questions about that. That's not the point. I have a different point about the oath. I want you to swear, not because I'm primarily concerned you won't do it, but I want you to swear for a completely different reason, which is, I want you to understand that my desire to go back to the land is not a sentimental reason. I want to be buried with my wife or be buried with my parents, or I have sentimental attachments to the land from which I came, which is totally understandable. People do have those attachments. But I want you to understand that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is that the land that I want you to bring me back to is actually sacred land. It's sacred in the Bible because it's the place in which God speaks. God doesn't talk in Egypt. All of these years, God never speaks in Mitzrayim. And therefore, the idea of returning to the land through the oath, through the Shavua, which the Torah repeats on several occasions, you go back, God swears to give you the land, right? Sometimes God swears not to give you the land, right? That's the story of the desert. God swore to give the land to the, that generation. And then God swore not to give the land to the generation, right? We say this every Friday night, don't we? That's what we actually say, okay? Very strange ending to the first psalm of Kabbalah Shabbos. Right? So we say God swore, God counterswears, one might say. But the point then is that the going to the land through the oath says something about the commitment about the land. It's a sacred land. And you have that with Jacob at the end of his life, end of his career, one might say, with Joseph, chapter 48, and you have it over here as well, possibly. That it's not just, I'm gonna come back, I take a nether. It's a sacred obligation. 
And when I come back, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a place on earth, God's kingdom on earth. That's what Yaakov says, earthly Jerusalem. It's a sacred obligation. It's not about sentimentality. It's not about safety. It may be about those things as well. I don't minimize them. But the fact of the matter is, it's also a sacred place. And that's the, that's the vow and that's the oath. And that goes, that's something that you have in the Chumash in other places as well. That's another way to read the, 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 the Ned. That's an additional point. I wonder about something else that um, Jacob received the covenantal blessing through devious means. And not really. He received it initially through devious means. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. But in chapter that, 28, when, I, when Isaac calls him in in chapter 28, uh -huh. and he blesses him in 28 by Yavarach and he says, go and go and find the, the correct wife. And God will give you the blessing of Abraham. There he knows it's Jacob. It's no, he knows that. So the point is, there's a that's a complication. Yes, he did deceive his blind father. Yes, he will pay the price. All that is true. And it's not clear that that blessing is, is still not his blessing. That's a good question. What about so, that first blessing? So my thought the is the second that blessing he knows he's giving Jacob. But 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 just I wonder if, if or at least the initial blessing was devious if if the later everything you're talking about is how he's making it his own he's he's earning the blessing he's justifying the blessing he's fulfilling the blessing because i think that's true i think that his experience in the house of Lavan will be an experience which will teach him a which which in which he pays a price because you always pay a price and secondly it's a it, I will get there. It's, 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 it's educational in terms of, I mean, this is the big question. What, what about that first blessing that he took under, you know, you know in, in, the, in the mode of deception, et cetera? What is the status of that blessing? That we'll get to later on. But for sure, the, 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 it's always a price you pay. Even if you do the right thing, very often the right choice has all kinds of negative implications as well. Okay, is there anybody else who has a comment or question? No, otherwise we'll continue with this. Anybody else? Okay, so we'll just continue now. Okay, so this is the um, point I wanted to make about the neder, Yaakov, neder lemar, etc. Now, just a couple of small details about the remainder of chapter twenty-eight. Um, just a small details. Some, some, some were raised last week, I believe. I uh, just wanted to address them very briefly. Um, couple of things that, again, I'm raising questions. I'm not going into it deeply, but we, we think about these things. And you know, that's the way we study. We sometimes we return to this many, many times the same text. Sometimes we come up with better interpretations or we discard old interpretations, etc. So in this dream, and the fact is Jacob is a dreamer. By the way, it's part of what I'm saying. Jacob is not, doesn't say God appeared to Jacob in a dream. It says Jacob dreamt. There's something about Yaakov, which is different in the sense that Yaakov thinks, is thinking beyond. It's not just about obedience for Yaakov's standpoint. In fact, I would say that obedience to is not Yaakov's strong suit. <laughs> obedience is not his strong suit. Not when it came to, yes, he did obey his mother. And that got him, got him in trouble, when I say, but, but later on, for example, we'll see that what marks Yaakov is, he doesn't necessarily follow the, the general rules. He tends to break rules. Uh, we'll see this in the next story, either today or next week. He's, he's a guy who breaks rules. Um, 
So he's a dreamer. He thinks he's dreaming. And in this dream, God appeared to Jacob and God gave Jacob a blessing. And the blessing about his descendants, which is verse number 14 of chapter 28. Uh, there it says, So there are two interesting things about the blessing. First of all, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. It means there'll be many. But I'm trying to remember now, did we have this expression earlier? I know um, in chapter 12, when God speaks to Abraham, God just said, didn't speak about the, um, uh, let's see. You have it actually at the end of chapter 13. There in chapter 13, end of 13, and God blessed Abraham, God said, I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth. You can't count the dust. So in chapter 13, it's as the dust. Then when God speaks to Abraham in chapter 15, takes Abraham outside, God said to Abraham, uh, your descendants look, look, look up to the heavens and count the stars. Can you number the stars? Such shall be your descendants. So in 15, it's the stars of heaven. Then you get to the binding of Isaac in chapter 22. And there at the end of 22, the blessing is twofold. There in chapter 22, verse 17, So there is the sand of the seashore, not the dust of the earth, but the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. So I mentioned the four different places, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 22. Um, I'm not remembering now if God used a similar language for Isaac or just simply said, I give you Abraham's blessing. Let me just check that for one second. Um, yeah, so there in chapter 26, it's stars of the heaven. Um, chapter 26, verse 4, I will give you, I'll make them like the stars of heaven. So you have five different places in Genesis. We had two now where there's a blessing. Stars of the heaven appears three times. Sand of the seashore appears once. And dust of the earth appears one time. One time. When it comes to Jacob, what God says to Jacob is, apart from Uforatsu, that's completely new, to spread out in all directions. And we'll get back to that term later, not now. That's interesting. But apart from that, you have when God speaks to Jacob, your descendants shall be like a fire, like the dust of the earth. Now, I just wanted to put that aside for one moment. And I wanted to just to somebody last week, I think it might have been Laszlo who asked the question. I don't know if Laszlo's here right now, but Laszlo asked the question about the word Rosh. The word Rosh, I mean, this little story appears several times. Number one, it appears when he takes the rock and puts it under his head. Then it appears again later on when he sees um, the angels ascending and descending the staircase. Um, the staircase is Vrosho Magia Hashemaima. The head of it, the top of it is, is reaching the heavens. And then you have later on again uh, where Jacob uh, is, references the, the rock under his head, Evan Summer Rashotab in verse 18. And then you have in verse 18, he sets up a pillar 
and on the top, the head of the pillar, he poured the oil. So somebody, I thought it was Lazarus, commented last week, it's curious that in this little story, the word Rosh appears several times. Actually, it's four times. Lazarus is here. So what do we make of this? So let me just, let me just uh, muse out loud and make the following observation. And we'll come back to this later. We observed in our study of Jacob taking the blessing from his brother, the blessing that was Isaac had intended to give to, um, to give to Esau. And Esau comes back and Yitzchak has already blessed Yaakov. Your brother came in stealth and he took your blessing. To which Jacob says, did he call himself, to which Esau says, did he call himself Yaakov? Was he named Jacob? He circumvented me twice. He took my birthright and he took my blessing. And what's interesting is when Jacob, Jacob's name is Jacob, it's Yaakov, and he's called Yaakov because he's holding on to the heel of his, of, of his brother upon birth, perhaps trying to hold him back or maybe to be pulled out with the other, that the blessing of the other should also be his. That's another way to see it. But what struck us in reading about that story and the name Yaakov and taking advantage of the other person's weakness, which is what Yaakov does, uh, brother comes back from the field and he's tired, the father is blind. And what struck us was that the first one who operates in exactly this way is none other than the uh, Nachash, the snake of Genesis. And the snake of Genesis, God says to the snake, you're the eternal enemy of the human being. She will smash you in your head. And you will attack him at the heel. The contrast between Rosh and Akev. And the snake is told further, you will dwell in the dust all the days of your life. The human is told, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And what I wonder out loud over here is that if we presume, which I think is the plain reading of the Chumash, that at least in the first Jacob stories, there is a reference by the Torah to the snake. Mm. I wonder whether over here, the use of Afar and Rosh is not intended to further make that connection. Mm. And it begs the question of us, or invites us to reflect upon what it actually means. And I do intend to uh, revisit this. Um, and by the way, um, this is very last minute, but I do plan to give a four part session on the snake in the garden, starting this Thursday night, 7.30 to 8.30. You oh, can't even register for it yet, but 7.30 to 8.30, we'll send out the notice and everybody's invited. It's very last minute, but the snake, it's, it's how the snake plays out in the Bible, the nature of the snake, what it says about the human being, what it says about evil. And we can't cover this big topic. And there's also an entire Kabbalistic conversation about this, which is extraordinarily interesting, but we'll begin the conversation with four sessions, ending the Thursday before Thanksgiving, everybody's invited, should be very exciting. But here I'm, I just thinking out loud over here about the Rosh and the, the Akev and the Afar, which all appears in the story over here. And I strongly, you know, uh, suspect 
that the Torah is playing off that earlier story of Yaakov. Because Yaakov interests us. Yaakov is the key character of the book. Jacob is Israel, the sons of B'nai Israel. So Yaakov is, of course, the key person. And when Yaakov, Yaakov moves through life and the amazing challenges he faces, and now he manages to deal with them, one might say to overcome the challenges by the end of his life, which is a life of struggle, a life of difficulty. But he, he's, at the end of the day, great hero. Um, so all along the way, there are all kinds of hints, and that's how the Torah works, constantly one story connecting to the other. So I think the Rosh and the Afar and the Yaakov are all deeply connected, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up in the future. We're not going to abandon this, obviously, but that's, I just want to make that point about, uh, about Yaakov. Um, so, Rabbi Silver, the first yeah. class will be this Thursday? This Thursday. Well, five oh days. God. There'll be a Zoom link. You'll be able to get it. The cable will post it. I think by Tuesday, you'll be able to register. So, you're Rabbi, all welcome to come, tell others about it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it myself. Rabbi or, Silver? To, yes. Can I, uh, just on your ACAB point, uh, yes. I, I, uh, I mean, the ACAB, the, the heel and the head are opposites. Yes. And, and uh, his name, uh, Yaakov, obviously is referring to his being like on the heel. Here he is, uh, I'm just following up on your point, I think. He, here, uh, he, if he continues on this way that he's doing where he's taking proactive steps and dreaming and thinking and doing things for God, maybe he will become a head, not a, not a heel. That's right. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the, um, the idea of becoming the Rosh, how, how one becomes the Rosh. What's interesting is that in the story over here, again, we, this requires a lot of thought, but what's striking is he pours the, he sets this pillar up as a pillar to God, and he pours the oil on, on, the, top of, on the top of the pillar. God is standing above, right? The, the Sulam goes, Rosho Magia Shemaina. So what he's doing is, I think, by affirming, he's affirming God's singularity, one might say, or God's, God's centrality. And perhaps what the Torah is saying, in affirming God's centrality, one then, one then can achieve a sense also of, of, of being ahead, being a Rosh, not being on the bottom. He has to affirm God's centrality, which is what the story is about. He's, a, he's affirming God's centrality. He's saying, if I come back, I'm going to make you the center. I'm going to build the house. The word by it means, I think, family. It also means sacred place. And I think for Yaakov, those two things are not two separate things. I think for Yaakov, the idea of building the family around sacred place, around sacred space, around God, or where God talks, part of Yaakov's concern with coming back to the land. Part of Yaakov's uh, displeasure with, 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 with Mitzrayim, or one might say disagreement with Joseph about where where the Jewish community has to be centered. For, 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 for Yaakov, it's only in the land of Canaan. It can't be in Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim is a place where God never talks, apart from all the other abuses of Mitzrayim. But there's, there's no God there. So I, you can't access God in Mitzrayim. So therefore, that's not the place that Yaakov, Yaakov wants to go back to that first vision, right? In fact, the very end of Yaakov's life, I don't want to jump the gun, but one of the last things Yaakov says to Yosef, when Yaakov blesses Menashe and Ephraim together, but he puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim. And Joseph tries to pull his hand off. And what does Yaakov say? Yodati b'ni yodati. From someone who says in the beginning of his career, in our chapter, anochi lo yodati. So the movement of Jacob through his life from a person who says lo yodati to a person who can say to Joseph, 
who's no slouch. Your dati bini, I know better than you. You don't, you don't, you don't know. I, I know. Your dati bini, your dati. This also, this one's also great, but the other great is still. That is to say, it's one blessing. They don't get two different blessings. They share one blessing, but, but again, but this is well, this is the story. Now, what Ozzy puts on the chat over here is very true, and I can't get into that now. And this is very important point. I'll just repeat it for those who didn't see it. That sometimes you have to be the snake also. And that is what makes this very interesting, actually. And that's actually what the Zohar picked up. They go their own wow. path with it. But that's sometimes you can't just be the non-snake because you live in a world with snakes. I mean, you have to also understand that you live in the real world. I give you one example of this, which is that, you know, not do with snakes, but Many years ago, someone asked me to write a, uh, a recommendation for her. So I wrote a recommendation. And I said, a pretty good recommendation. You know, I said nice things. And I showed it to my wife. She said, you can't send that in. I said, why not? It's accurate. She said, it is accurate. I said, she's very good. But you have to remember. It was a college. It was a foundation. I remember. They get any recommendations that say, this is the greatest person who ever, who ever existed in, in all of humanity. They're all the greatest. And this one is pretty good. The one even look at it. You have to understand you, what, what you're doing. You're submitting a, a true application, but, but the others aren't necessarily telling the whole truth. Uh, maybe not even most of the truth. So the fact is, you've got to deal with reality. You can't just pretend you're living in your own little world. And reality is you write recommendations. You have to understand the standard of what's being written. And you, you don't want to lie, but you also don't want to say something that will be injurious to the person you're trying to help, who is terrific, actually. Um, so the fact is that sometimes you, we can't be oblivious to those that are around us. There are the lovers of the world, the efforts of the world. You know, there's all kinds of people in it, and you've got to deal with reality, which is what politics basically is, to deal with reality. And you try to maintain a uh, kind of integrity. But on the other hand, it's not always that easy. So I'm not saying it's easy. The Chumash doesn't say anything is easy. It's very complex. That's the beauty of it, the complexity. Okay, let me, let me make one last comment here and then we'll set up for next um, Sunday. And that is the story over here. Um, the story over here is about, plays off the, uh, the, uh, the Akeda. We know that the blessing of 27 played off the Akeda, but even over here, it touches on the Akeda, obviously, because he's coming to Hamakom. He's coming to the place. It's a special place. He names the place, as did Abraham. But what's interesting is, of course, after he names the place and takes his vow, Jacob leaves. In the case of Abram, it's quite the opposite. In the case of Abram, this is his, one might say, his final destination. And what marks the fact that Abram has reached the place and with a full understanding and the great climax is that twice in that story, the Torah says about Abraham, first when he sees the mountain, and then when he sees the ram entangled in the brush, by saw Abraham at Bayar. He lifted up his eyes and he sees. Abraham has perfect perception. He sees from a distance, he sees the ram after the fact, whatever. He sees everything, he understands about being commanded, he understands what to do, the sacrifice. So that's the story of Abraham. The story of Jacob is after he names the place, he's, he's, he's gone. He's going to exile. He has to try to get back and it won't be easy. And what's interesting in this context is the first verse of chapter 29. 
chapter 29, verse 1, a very strange verse, which is, Jacob, here they translate, resumed his journey, but literally lifted up his feet, and he walked to the land of the east. I can't remember any place in the Bible we have that expression. It may be someplace. We have several times in Genesis. We have it several times. And the Ragwa were taking him away, not towards, but away. So here the Chumash, I think, is actually recalling the Akedah, but recalling it from the standpoint of exactly the opposite. With Abraham, it's all about a full perception. With Jacob, not just that he leaves, but to touch on the point that was made earlier, the context was about faith, how much faith he has. But I would say perception. He doesn't have yet the perception that, that Abraham has, but why would he? We're talking about Abraham at the end of his life. He sees perfectly at the end of his life. So Yaakov is just starting the journey. So here you have, instead of Aisai Deinav, you have Aisai Yaakov Ragrav. And finally, he walked to the land of the east, Now here is another good example of where a word in its context has great significance. And the word is Kedem, to go east. Because when you go east in the book of Genesis, whether it's east of Eden in the beginning stories, or whether, it, whether it's the story of Lot who leaves Abraham, which means not from the east, but to the east. He goes eastward. When you go eastward, when people travel eastward, in this book, they don't return. The human being cannot return to the Garden of Eden for any number of reasons, but one of them is there's the flaming cherubs blocking the way. You can never get back there. Lot leaves Abraham, he never returns. And now Jacob picks up his feet, and what the Chumash is saying to us in this little verse, when you read it in the context of Breshit is, he's traveling to the east, and my beloved reader, do you think he's gonna make it back? No one ever has. On the other hand, we have God's promise. And we read God's promises, it won't be easy. No one ever made it back, but you may be the first to do it, and I'm gonna help you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to protect you. And suddenly, all those promises of protection and non-abandonment, we understand that we're in for a struggle over here. So this is how we now begin. Jacob is about to enter into the land of Haran. And we will uh, next week pick up with the Jacob's encounter with Ravan, with Haran, one might say with the uh, course ultimately with uh, with uh, himself of course but we'll see how it plays out okay I'll, i will stop at this point are there comments or questions i please speak up the comment is that it's genius okay right whatever. fabulous <laughs> analysis Jeez. can i just ask you a, qu a question um yeah. and um what what was the difference between the lifting his feet, Jacob versus Abraham. Yeah, uh, right. The difference is that it's not about feet and eyes. With Jacob, with Abraham, point of the Akedah is that when you read the Akedah, I think the Akedah bothers many people. I got that. When you read the Akedah, what the Chumash actually says, it 
it's about Abraham's a perfect fulfillment of God's command and B, the point about lifting up his eyes and seeing, which appears twice, let's take the second occasion. Abraham, the angel says, don't sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he sees a ram behind him or afterwards, either way, God didn't say to Abraham or the angel didn't say sacrifice a ram instead of Isaac. But Abraham understands that what it means is that God said to bring a sacrifice and to sacrifice Isaac, but God meant a proxy. So he understands what God meant. God didn't mean Isaac himself. God meant someone who represents Isaac, something that represents Isaac. So it's a perfect understanding without being told. Abraham is able to figure out what God's demands are and to fulfill perfectly what God desires of Abraham. And that's why he saw Abraham at the And my point is that in chapter 29, after Jacob comes to the very same place, literally the same place, the chosen place, and names the place, and all of that, and the promise, and the next verse is, he picks up his feet and he leaves. And that picks up his eyes, which suggests two things. Okay. First of all, it underscores that he's leaving. He's the, he, 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 his journey beginning now. But second of all, the fact that it doesn't say he lifted up his eyes, he expected, doesn't say that, does suggest to us that he has a lot more growth. To, there's a lot more Jacob has to learn. He's not on Abraham's level yet, right? or even close. But of course, Abraham's story is the end of Abraham's life, or the beginning of Jacob's life. And he, he has a dubious beginning in terms of the blessing, in terms of the Bechorah and all that. Okay, but now our story begins. He's going to have a lot to learn. And the second half of the verse says, and it's not going to be easy, because he's going to a place of great danger. Yes. And no one ever came back before. And we, 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 are, we anticipate the story. We were wondering, Tumish is, is drawing us into the story. Something's going to happen here, which is very, going to be very difficult for Yaakov. And we'll see how he's able to overcome it, his struggles, etc. what he learns, etc. But uh, 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 well, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Thank you. Doesn't it say, which is the opposite than yes, it Certainly, it says with Hagar that God opened her eyes. That's a good point. Yeah. With Abram, it's he opens his own eyes. It doesn't have yes. to be told. You know, I always think the goal of the Chumash is, that's my take on that the goal of religion is to enable us to make good decisions without being told, to figure out. Oh my God. Give us a certain autonomy. In life, we make all kinds of decisions, and we hope they are good, they're good choices. And I think that the, what the Chumash is suggesting is that the various directives that we're given will help us, guide us, when we have to make the, the important decisions in life, in which, which there is no book to tell us what to do. We've got to figure it out our own. But hopefully these directives are useful in terms of enabling us to make good choices. So that's what Avram's able to do. Hagar is not that way. God must open up her eyes. But with Avram, it's by Sabraham at Deinavia. That's an important point. Um, okay, I'll stop at this point then. Again, my email is dsilber at risha.org. I did mention the Thursday night class. It's a space sudden, but I'm excited about it. And you're all welcome to join that. 7.30 to 8.30, Thursday evenings. Um, snake in the garden. Have a good have a good week and look forward. And Diso, if you have questions, desilberatrisha.org is the email. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right. And hello everyone. It's good to see everyone again. Our next class, in addition to the class Rabbi Silver mentioned, is on Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern with uh Rabbanit Lea Sarna.
Frizzball, uh, Atomachir. And thank you to everyone who is asking questions in chat and raising hands. Um, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, feel, feel free to email and send your questions in. There were a lot of them coming in and I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them. For those of you in Israel, have a good night. And to those of you who are starting out your day, have a good day.